From APM, this is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports on ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. Over the past few episodes, we've been exploring issues in rural schools. First, we looked at Vermont and how a law there is encouraging small school districts to consolidate into larger ones. And this week, we're going to explore some rural school issues in the South. In several states in the South, Alabama, Arkansas, Kentucky, around half of public schools are located in rural areas. Mississippi is another example. It suffers from the highest rate of poverty in the country and some of the lowest standardized test scores. Jackie Mader is a reporter and the Mississippi Bureau Chief at the Heckinger Report, a nonprofit news organization that covers education. Mader also writes about rural schools for EdWeek, and she joins us on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's start off and talk about the states in the South that are heavily rural. How do rural students in the region compare to their urban or suburban peers? Rural students uh, nationwide, but especially in the South where you do have these high poverty rates, they are less likely to go to college. And those that do go to college are less likely to go to four-year or selective schools. They're more likely to rely on food assistance. They struggle with health issues like obesity. And as we know, you know, in a lot of rural areas in the South, there can be shortages of grocery stores or of access to summer food programs. So these issues are just compounded, you know, as students are living in these rural areas. Those are quality of life issues, which will certainly affect a, a person's education. What about the schools themselves? Are they as equally resourced as their city peers? Definitely not. So the rural schools in the South are facing declining enrollment numbers and budget shortages, but they have costs that other districts don't have. For example, districts in the Mississippi Delta have to bus students a lot further than urban districts, say in Jackson, Mississippi. So they're covering a lot more ground, literally with buses, but they don't necessarily receive more money for it. So they are severely underfunded by the state and they're not receiving more money to account for these rural challenges. They're also facing chronic teacher shortages. It's really hard to recruit and retain teachers to rural schools, and there may not be quality housing. So once you get teachers, you know, there's the issues of figuring out how to keep them at the school, but also how to keep them in these communities where they're often really isolated. A lot of rural schools in the South don't have the technology that more urban schools have. They also don't have the access to internet, so they're not getting this high-speed broadband access that a lot of urban and suburban districts can get very easily and very cheaply. Uh, Schools in the South, in the rural South, you know, they have to pay more for this internet. And once they get connected, it can be really hard to keep that connection. So that means teachers can't access the same online resources and students also can't access resources and programs that their peers in urban schools are getting. Some of those problems are problems that one might find in uh, rural schools in isolated parts of the West or even the Midwest, even the East, actually. What is particular to rural schools in the South that is different from uh, other rural schools in other parts of the country? Well, in the South particularly, you have a long history of racism and segregation. That definitely comes into play. A lot of schools are still very segregated. A lot of 
rural schools in Mississippi, for example, are largely black and very, very poor. And so, you know, in those districts, it's very hard to, say, raise property taxes and get more local funding for schools. So there are, you know, a lot of poverty and racial issues that still plague these schools. And that's definitely unique to the South, I would say more so than other parts of the country. We should note that this legacy of separate schools goes back to the 1954 ruling in Brown v. Board of Education, and that in Mississippi in particular, but across the South, uh, there was a response by white families, white parents, uh, to create essentially their own private academies. And that legacy continues today. Absolutely. So we've done some reporting at the Heckinger Report looking at this Those private academies are called, by many people in the South and outside of the South, called segregation academies just because they are still segregated and they're private schools in these rural areas that are mostly white. Um, They also occur in urban areas. But when I've been reporting in, say, rural Mississippi, it's always amazing to see how segregated these schools still are. You go to the public schools and they're mostly black, if not all black, and then there will be a private academy right down the street, and that's where most of the white students go. So it's definitely still a very big issue. How do rural schools in Mississippi and across the South, how are they trying to deal with these problems? What can they do? So a lot of uh, the schools in the South are trying the same things that rural schools nationwide are trying. So, for example, they lack access to technology, so they're applying to grants from outside organizations to try to increase their technology programs and give kids a leg up. You're also seeing in rural parts of the South if children lack access to summer feeding programs. For example, it might take place at a school, but there's no transportation to that school. So kids during the summer don't have access to healthy food. You might see programs cropping up where they take the food out to children and deliver them you know, to an area closer to these rural communities or to the homes themselves. In terms of health care, so a lot of children in the rural South lack access to medical clinics, and they may only see a school nurse as their main uh, health care provider. So you're seeing rural communities come together and get grants for, say, a mobile lab where a dentist can visit rural communities on a bus or a doctor can take their show on the road and go to rural schools and see children in their areas. So there's definitely a lot of, I would say, looking for funding from other places. A lot of teachers are applying for grants from different crowdsourcing websites where they can receive donations and buy supplies for their kids. So a lot of uh, reaching out to outside communities for help. Now, in South Carolina in 2014, the state Supreme Court ruled that uh, state education officials were not adequately funding the poor and rural schools. And since then, lawmakers have been trying to come up with a plan. Can you give us a, a quick update on what is happening or not happening in South Carolina? Yes, unfortunately, it's it's what's not happening for the most part. So as you mentioned, the state Supreme Court did rule in favor of these rural districts and said there does need to be some sort of solution to help rural schools. But the Supreme Court ruling also said it's up to everyone, and that means the rural districts also have to help come up with a solution and prioritize the money they are receiving toward those students. So lawmakers have suggested a few things. Uh, They've suggested raising teacher salaries or loan forgiveness for teachers who go to these rural districts, but progress has been really slow. 
You mentioned that uh, many states in the South have poor internet connections in their schools, and I think you've reported on an attempt in Piedmont, Alabama, to to deal with that problem. How are they doing? Yes, so they're doing very well. Piedmont is a very small rural area in eastern Alabama, and their superintendent applied for some grants so that they could offer internet, and it's very unique. It covers the entire town, so it's not just internet service for students when they're at school. It's for all the residents in the town. They also started a one-to-one laptop program. So students receive um, a digital device where they can access the internet both in school and out of school. And educators in the district, they say that they've seen the number of college applications go up because students are able to research colleges and find financial aid information, which they can't really do if they don't have access to broadband internet and computers. They also said they've seen the number of adults who are working on their GEDs or trying to do some sort of higher education. They've seen that increase as well because, as I mentioned, they offer the internet to the entire town, and they're not just limiting it to in-school use. So that's a really unique solution. And funding is always an issue. The uh, superintendent, he said, you know, we're always worried about funding. We're trying to get more funding. But right now, they've seen a lot of success. A group in North Carolina is trying to help rural students by uh, improving the quality of college advising. Has that had an effect? Yes. So UNC Chapel Hill, they have a college advising corps. And what they do is they work with rural high school students. So these are students who, you know, may live very far from a college campus. They may never go to a college campus or step foot on one before they are in college. So their uh, college advising corps is trying to help these rural students apply for college. So kind of navigate the college admissions process, navigate financial aid, which can be very challenging to figure out that process and get all those forms filled out. And they're also organizing field trips so students can go to these college campuses and kind of expand their horizons and see, you know, what college options are out there and what it's like to actually go to college and live on a college campus. And as a result of this, the core is saying that they're seeing an increase in college enrollment at the rural high schools that are working with this advising core. So that's another really promising solution that we're seeing in North Carolina. Well, let's go back to Mississippi finally, and I wonder if you can characterize what the overall quality or or state of public education is like uh, in Mississippi. Is it, I mean, it sort of has the reputation as being among the, the worst public school systems in the country. Right. That's right. So it has long been at the bottom of a lot of the lists where you don't want to be at the bottom. So in terms of education, child poverty, and health issues, we have seen some progress over the last few years. So um, a few years ago, the legislature passed and the governor signed a big pre-K bill. So we are seeing state-funded pre-K for the first time in Mississippi. And a lot of educators are really hopeful that that means more kids will then come into kindergarten prepared to learn. And we're also seeing a lot happening with reading. And it hasn't been enough time to really see the impact of this. But again, a few years ago, the governor signed a bill into law that creates a third grade gate. So students in third grade can't move on to fourth grade until they're reading at grade level. You know, we're just in the first few years of that, so it's hard to see what's going to happen. But there has definitely been a bigger focus on education over the past few years. Where we're not really seeing a change is in the funding level of education in Mississippi. And 
a lot of educators, especially in these rural districts, that's what the biggest problem is, they say. So they are chronically underfunded. They're having to choose between buying new textbooks or updating science equipment. I spoke to a superintendent who said, our buses are you know, 10, 15, 20 years old, and we don't have money for new buses because we dealt with a tornado and we had to rebuild our roof. So there's a lot of issues happening where superintendents and teachers are having to decide, how do we spend the limited money we have? Jackie Mater has been covering education in Mississippi and across the South for the Heckinger Report. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to more of Jackie Mater's reporting at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, you can listen to our archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd also love to hear what you think about Educate. Leave us a review on iTunes or let us know at apmreports.org. We are on Facebook, and you can also tweet us at Educate Podcast, one word. Support for APM Reports comes from the Spencer Foundation, Lumina Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. Thank you.